Philippians. Demonstrating genuine appreciation. I want to go ahead and jump into the first part of it because it, it gets complicated. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. This is Philippians 1.1. 1, 1. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I said it gets complicated. You see the little notes you have up behind me. It's fascinating when you get deeper into the Word of God. So this morning we're going to do that right off the bat as we get introduced to Philippians. So I want you to pay attention to that first word, servants. You'll see the Greek word pop up. This is the Greek word you'll right behind me. Doulos is the way you say it. You'll see the English transliteration. That just simply means the English words replaced for each, or English letters replaced for the Greek letters. So doulos is the way you say it. And the way that's best translated is slaves. Isn't that interesting? There's a reason why, and you might think, how in the world did God allow slavery? That's so bad. I mean, a lot of people struggle with all the bad things that have happened in the world, and why would a loving God allow something like that? In his amazing sovereignty, he set it up so that we would see the negativity of slavery and all of the things that go along with it and still want us to submit to him, knowing that as we submit to him, we will also be submitting to difficulties. Do you get that? So it's bigger than servants. It's slaves. When we submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ, we are bowing down to him as his slaves. I will do what you want me to do, Lord. You see, that's what separates, really, Christians from those who simply wear the name Christian. Those who actually surrender to the lordship of Jesus. Everybody wants a savior, but not everybody wants a lord. Maybe you remember when you were growing up, if you were attending a youth group, when kids came to meet Christ, maybe you were one of them. Most people come to meet Christ out of a fear of hell. That's the reality. I don't, I've never met anyone who just wanted to become a Christian because they wanted to be a slave. I just, I, just long, I just keep waking up wanting to be a slave to somebody. And then, so I submitted to the Lordship of Jesus. No, everybody pretty much comes to Jesus when they realize that heaven and hell are real. There is an eternal thing. This is a spiritual battle. And I don't want to wind up in the bad place. I want to go to the good place. So we all want a Savior. But the Bible teaches us you don't get the Savior without the Lord. People want a backdoor into heaven. Have you been to a funeral lately, past, say, 40, 50 years? It seems like most preachers or most officiants at funeral services or graveside services assure everyone that whoever died is in heaven. They're in a better place now. Oh, really? Did, were they a slave to Jesus? Because that would be, and by the way, an officiant or a preacher doesn't have the right or privilege to judge anyone into heaven or hell. That's God's business, not my business. Now, I want to live so that I go to the good place, and I want you to. 
And if you die, I'm not going to stand up and say, I don't know if they went to heaven or hell. I'm not going to do that. I've done lots of funerals, and nobody's ever accused me of making it feel horrible at a funeral. But I had a wise man teach me in my first undergraduate seminary, you don't have to and you shouldn't preach anyone into heaven at a funeral. Because the next one you do, somebody attended that other one and said, well, you said they went to heaven. What about my brother? You just, you didn't say that. So what's happened is we've softened the gospel so much that in almost every funeral or memorial service, everybody goes to heaven. In fact, we glamorized a historical event in the Titanic. I know a lot of people love the Titanic, and if you'd like me to share with you why I can't stand it, um, I will. But uh, the biggest piece is that if you'll remember, we have the main, one of the main characters, actually the main character is the lady who is telling her story, and she has this precious gem, and, and, and you know it was given to her by a, a gambling, um, adulterous, uh, selfish, except the movie made him look not selfish at the end, but it, it was given to her. She had an affair with him. She went on to have a family, kids, grandkids. You saw all the pictures. But secretly, she still longed for that one-night affair guy. And at the very end, remember, they're looking for the gym, and she just gets rid of it. And then, if you'll remember, when she dies, although she's lived a life of lies, loving somebody else, married to somebody else, at the end of it all, when she goes to heaven, if you'll remember, her spirit's floating, and it goes to the Titanic. It's all restored. It's not sunk anymore. And guess what? She meets her one-night stand guy under the clock. And that's one of the many reasons I can't stand the movie, because it glamorizes sin and makes you think that heaven is a place where selfish people who commit all kinds of sins that never repent of them get to go. That's not what my Bible teaches. I told you this gets complicated. So we're supposed to be slaves to Jesus. That means we do what he says, what he wants, because we have submitted to his lordship. That's what Christianity is. Now, that's not the only complicated word. There's a couple more. If you look, there's a letter over overseers. You see that? So the Greek for that, you see it down below. Here's the way you say it in English, episkopos. Does that sound familiar to you? There's a whole denomination that's named after that. It's kind of cool. So how you translate it literally is overseers. That's what it means. But how we often translate it when we discuss matters is elders. That's why I put it in quotation. Now, it is, there are several universal terms. I wanted to take you through a whole theological explanation of uh, church leadership structure. I'm going to take you through a small piece in a little bit, but it's okay to call elders elders. It's, it's okay. But biblically speaking, this word means overseers. There are other words that also are, we use like synonyms for elders. Then there's another word. You see the word deacons. And the Greek word, you'll see it float down. And the way you say it in English, diakonos. And the way you literally translate it is 
ministers, or you could also say deacons. Now, you could also say the word servants, but that would be very confusing in my little chart behind me because we've already got servants up there, which is better translated slaves. Now, there were many servants in the church that were not official deacons. Understand that because I'm going to show you a chart right now. So this chart behind me, this is biblical church leadership. This is not something you're going to find in some book that I know of. Uh, probably the best book on church leadership is a book that's out of print by Arthur Harrington called What the Bible Says About Church Leadership or What the Bible Says About Leadership. Now, if you'll notice in the chart behind me, you see Jesus is the head of the church. That's the way it works. Is that right? He's the head of the church. And then underneath that, you have the evangelists and the overseers. One of the pieces that I notice is missing in independent Christian churches like this, if you don't know, this is a non-denominational, I like to call it undenominational, because there's a lot of churches that call themselves non-denominational that aren't. But this is not a denomination. There is no headquarters. There is no document that says this is what churches like this have to believe. We actually do believe this book. This is it. And, and we are autonomous. We're an independent church. We just believe this. And you say, well, aren't, isn't there a lot of room for a whole lot of interpretation? Let me tell you something. I'm not smart enough to tell you my interpretation of this or that. I just believe it. And if I start doing something else other than, if I give you something other than what it says, then I'm in conflict with Scripture. Here's, I saw a cartoon side by side. I had a, I had a preacher uh, well, I'll just give you the main one. It had a preacher with his finger in the face of another preacher. Yeah, well, it says yes in the Greek, or it says yes in the English, but in the Greek it means no. Never. Never in the Bible will the meaning actually be the opposite of what you think. It'll be in the ballpark. But here in the chart, we have Jesus is the head. We have the evangelists and overseers who work together as a leadership team. But in independent Christian churches, we have what I have seen over the years. And by the way, there's like 5,000 in the United States churches like this that are kind of linked together with history, and it's a really cool history. But they're churches that just want to follow the Bible. But one of the things I've noticed is we so badly don't want to look like the Baptists that we... we we throw out a significant piece. Because in Baptist churches, oftentimes, it's the preacher who basically makes all the decisions, does all the leading, and everybody's just got to do what the preacher says. And we don't want to be like the Baptists, so we try to avoid that. But the reality is, in Scripture, if you read the pastoral epistles, that's why I have that up behind me, and Acts and the whole New Testament, you will discover the evangelist plays a significant role in providing leadership. In fact, if you read the pastoral epistles, the evangelist is supposed to provide leadership to the elders and the deacons. That's biblical. Sorry if it sounds Baptist, but maybe they have part of that right. And then you'll notice also, and in, in, in analogies are not always great, the Bible's best, but to hopefully help you understand this, then you have the overseers, and by the way, the, there's a Greek word also for overseers that we're not looking at today, but the Greek word for overseers that sounds closer to what they call ministers in churches, pastor, there's a word that's almost exactly like pastor, 
that's used synonymously in referencing elders. Now, most churches who have a preacher, most of them require the preacher to meet the qualifications of an elder, so that's okay. But, and it's okay to, you call me pastor, that's fine. Biblically speaking, you could call the elders pastor, because that's what they are. It comes from where we get our word pasture, where shepherds watch the flocks. Elders are shepherds. It's biblical. And then ministers, those would be servants, and these would be official servants. In the Bible, there are deacons, and there's qualifications that they must meet. By the way, not in the pastoral epistles, but in Acts There is also a woman by the name of Phoebe who was a deaconess, and she was an official minister servant in the church. Uh, Doesn't fit in the pastoral epistles, but fits in the overall ministry of the church. Uh, Other leaders would include, and I've got small print you see up behind me, hosts, nurturers, and teachers. So let's say one of you decides, I would like to host a small group in my home. Great. My suggestion would, to you would be you have to have three elements if you want to be an evangelistic small group. And those would include those three. Hosts, that's someone who would actually just open up their home. They don't have to teach. They don't have to make phone calls. They just open up their home. You have nurturers. Nurturers are the people that naturally do stuff like, hey, how's your mother? We were praying for her. You know people like that? Those are very good nurturers. And they would be the ones who would make the phone calls. Hey, we're having a dinner over at the host's house. Uh, What are you going to bring? You know, they're the ones that do that. They're the ones that also watch their clocks. Okay, we said we're never going to go longer than an hour and a half. And here we are. We need to get out of these people's home. That's what nurturers do. They're looking out for other people. They're the mother hens. Male or female doesn't matter. But I would recommend all nurturers be directly connected to an overseer. That way the shepherds in the church can actually look over even the small groups through people. Also, there are teachers. That's the person that does have to prepare and study and deliver the message and lead the group. That's essentially the the leader. That person, too, should be connected to an overseer, maybe even a different overseer, and that way the people are not neglected. As churches grow, it it can get very difficult for the elders to look out for everyone Uh, So it's a good idea that they work through the others in the church. I hope this makes sense to you. That's basically a biblical description. Let's get back to the verses that we were at before. There it all is. We went through the complicated stuff. Now let's look at the fun stuff. Did you notice this isn't just written by Paul? Paul and Timothy. He's one of the ones that two of the letters in the pastoral epistles were written to. Paul and Timothy, which means necessarily Timothy is there with Paul as he is incarcerated in Rome because they're writing this letter together. Interesting. Identifying himself and Timothy as slaves, and proudly so. Look at that. To all the saints, which is just another word for Christians, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, Now, pause for a minute. The book is to the Philippians. What what about that? Well, we're going to talk, I'm going to give you some details in just a minute, but it's a fascinating, it was a hub, 
It was the central piece of Macedonia, and it was, I believe, Paul's second missionary journey when he went there, and it it was fascinating how he got there. Paul had a couple of other places he wanted to go. He felt that this is where God wants me to go. But the Holy Spirit stopped him and sent him to Philippi. Paul, an apostle, had to be redirected in his life. He thought he needed to go there. Nope, you're not going there. He thought he needed to go there. Nope, you're not going there. This is where you need to go. And maybe you're one of those people that's like that. It's like, I thought I was supposed to, and then I thought I was, but then this is it. Now, don't use this as a weapon against other people, (laughs) but it certainly would be a good time to be like Paul and just pray, God, where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? In this world that we live in right now and all this confusion, wouldn't it be great to have clarity? Well, ask for it. Do you believe in a God who answers prayers? Ask for it. So he says to all the Christians in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. Okay, so that's pretty cool. He's writing a letter to the congregation, but he's making clearly a notation with elders and deacons. I'm including, he's got mutual respect for everybody there. I love that. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, if you've read much of the New Testament, you've read this kind of phrase a lot from Paul. Paul, a man who used to kill Christians, rounding them up for Rome, used in his letters this phrase that included grace and peace. He was truly converted. Now, what about this Philippians, this book of Philippians? I wanted to show you a picture that I could not find because it's been scrubbed. My, my uh, I guess, mentor from afar, I've never met him, I met him Chuck Swindoll. Y'all know who he is? One of my favorites. He, he's, his books are great. His preaching is great. Chuck Swindoll, at one point in time, had these posters that they put up in and Christian bookstores that have almost disappeared from America. But these posters had a guy sitting on a motorcycle, looked like the Terminator, uh, you know, uh, Arnold sitting there, but it was Chuck Swindoll sitting on the motorcycle, and it said, The Terminator. And I wanted to find that for you. It had smoke, and it looked really cool, but I couldn't find it. It's been scrubbed from the Internet. So instead, I'm going to show you this image of... Chuck Swindoll and his wife, sitting on a motorcycle, just enjoying life. And then there's the front of the, the book. The back cover has this, uh, and him and his wife on there, just riding through life and enjoying it. And it happens to be in fall colors, which is perfect for today. The title of the book is called Laugh Again, Experience Outrageous Joy. And if and he what he does in his book, I highly recommend it. We're going through Philippians. You will not hear me doing Chuck Swindoll stuff as we're going through Philippians. But he takes you through Philippians and wants you to learn how to have outrageous joy, to experience outrageous joy. A lot of people in a church, when you say um, joy, people automatically think that means singing. Well, it can. I mean, 
When you're happy, you tend to hum, whistle, sing. Great. We express joy that way. Sometimes we sing some songs that are pretty contrite, not necessarily full of joy. But the most obvious expression of joy is laughter. You ever been in a church, maybe you were in your youth, and somebody next to you started laughing, and you're like, what's so funny? And then you start laughing, and you don't know why. And then you can't stop, and you're like, we're in church, we're not supposed to be doing that. Anyway, it's one of those things. Joy is, it's contagious. You hear a bunch of kids laughing. That just brings joy, because they're having joy. And Philippians is that book. If you want to pick a book out of the New Testament and learn how to live joy and have it be contagious in your life, this is the book. <clears throat> now, I want to give you the details, just a couple. The word joy and rejoice appears 15 times in the book of Philippians. And if you count the verses, that averages every seven verses, the word joy or rejoice. I love the word rejoice because it means joy upon joy, laughter upon laughter. It's something that the world really cannot experience without knowing Jesus, joy upon joy, the kind of joy upon joy that only Christians can know because they have peace. And you can laugh through some of the most difficult times. I don't know if you've met people. I'm sure you have. Maybe you haven't analyzed it. But some of the people that you know that have the most joyful outlook on life, Christian people, if you get to know their story, you'll discover they didn't just have a rosy life. I mean, you might imagine, you know, well, they're so happy all the time. I mean, most of the time they're smiling. Most of the time they laugh at even difficult things. They must... They must have just had an easy life. No, you should ask them questions and ask them about their life, and you'll discover quickly you don't want their life. They just learned how to get through life and laugh through it more than they cry through it. It's a choice. And Philippians is a book that can help us do that. And here's a weird thing, really unusual, at least in the eyes of the world. Paul wrote this while he was chained. Actually, he was chained to a guard. This is the kind of imprisonment he had while he was in Philippi. He had a guard shackled to him while he was incarcerated and writing this that we're reading today. And you think about it, it's like he did nothing wrong, yet he's incarcerated. And he had such a good outlook. He's got this, these cuffs on him. He's got the Guard next to him, like, I've got a captive audience. You have to listen to everything I say to you. You ready for this? I'm going to talk to you about Jesus. I mean, that's the way he saw things. Us, we feel like we're dragging around a ball and chain sometimes when there's an opportunity right there and we don't see it. Philippians will help us. At least it helps me. Let's go on to verses 3 through 5. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Always, in every prayer of mine, for you all, making my prayer with joy, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Huh. Philippians was first mentioned in Acts 16. That's when we see 
Paul going there when he didn't think he was going to go there. I want to go here. I want to go there. No, God's sending me to Philippi. And the first person we meet there is Lydia, a, a woman, a maker of purple. And if you'll remember, Lydia, she's gone down in history as a woman who was converted to Christ and converted many others. I don't know about you, but this is, this is where I, I want to take you. I, I don't know about you if you understand the significance of women in the Bible, but the way God has his story inspired is from the very beginning. Women are very significant. In fact, from the very creation, if you remember, after God created everything, he created all things. He's like, oh, this is good. Oh, this is good. Oh, this is good. He gets the man and goes, he needs help. <laughs> and he created woman to complete man. Man is incomplete without woman. In fact, man is helpless without woman. And certainly this has played out in history. Most of the time, churches, through very difficult times, especially during wars when men were sent away and there was nothing left except young boys and older men who couldn't be sent to war, the women stepped up and did the work. Well, it just so happened that in this church, this church was actually started, I think we still have some history printed over there, started because the Holy Spirit led a woman to think, you know what, there ought to be a church here. And here we are. Lydia was the most evangelistic person, aside from Paul and Silas, who went there. She became very evangelistic and led many people to the Lord. We, we also see in the next part of the story in uh, Philippi, there was a woman that followed Paul and Silas around and started basically telling everybody, hey, these, these are Jesus' people. They're leading people to Jesus. Well, this woman was very much, uh, she, was a, she was a slave, and she was a moneymaker for her slave owners because she practiced a satanic thing called divination. Divination is trying to predict the future. And she did this, and she made money for her slave owners. She predicted the future. And... And uh, so she went around, and everybody knew she's predicting the future. She can tell the future, and it's, even though she had this evil power, it's not of God. It's bad. And even though it's not a bad thing to go around saying, these, these are Christians, and they're going to make some of you Christians. They're going to lead you to Christ. There, she's going around shouting this. She was obnoxiously doing so. She was interfering with the ministry of Paul and Silas, and so Paul just turned around and was like, in the name of Jesus, get out of her. He casted this demon out, and she could no longer predict the future. You'd think that'd be a good thing. Well, her slave owners couldn't make money on her anymore, so they got very upset, and they complained enough that they got Paul and Silas thrown in prison. Isn't that interesting? He's writing this letter from prison, and his first experience there landed him, landed him in jail. And while he's in jail, they didn't just throw him in jail. They beat them severely, shackled them together. And Paul and Silas began praising God that they were inflicted because of their commitment to Christ. They were considered worthy to suffer like this for Christ. They were singing songs 
while in jail. You can imagine that echoing off the walls and normally you're hearing moaning and whimpering and all that kind of stuff and instead there's people singing. They're expressing joy in a very difficult time and a miracle happened and everybody's shackles came off and the doors flung open and it was dark and uh, as the earth shook and all, I guess all the The little lanterns must have gone out. I don't know, but it was dark. The jailer was so upset, he just knew everybody escaped. So he he drew his sword, and he was about to commit suicide, knowing he's going to get tortured for letting these people escape. And Paul said, hold on, hold on, we're still here. And it, it it shocked him. And ultimately, they led him to Jesus, him and his whole family. They were all baptized into Christ that night. Fascinating thing. And, and the story continues. It's a, it's a wonderful story. In fact, the uh, magistrates then sent word to release them. And Paul said, oh, no. No, no, no. Uh, we are uh, Romans. Uh, you, uh, you tell them to come to us and they can release us. And that put the fear of God in them. Because like, well, we didn't know they were Roman citizens. We didn't know. You're not allowed to beat them and incarcerate them without cause. Anyway, you can read it. It's a cool story. But notice how Paul begins with verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Another way to word that would be, I thank God every time I think of you. You know how that happens. Somebody just comes to mind. You, you, you saw him in church, and maybe you didn't get to say something that you wanted to say, or maybe something just reminds you of them, and then they're in your head. Paul says that he thanks God every time he thinks of these people in Philippi. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. This Paul is demonstrating genuine appreciation with this section. But I don't want you to miss something. I don't want you to miss what he says. I thank my God every time I remember you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. So because of his thoughts, he has happy thoughts about them. He has a perpetual prayer. Plus, he's always thanking God for them every time he thinks of them, and he does it with joy. You know how that works? That's the way it's supposed to work when you think of your brothers and sisters in Christ. You, get, you, you bond with them here in this sweet fellowship in this local congregation. And every time you think of them, it almost makes you want to smile. That's the way Paul feels about the church in Philippi. That's the way we are supposed to feel about each other. And we're supposed to be thankful. Yesterday, I got to watch a bunch of men work together up here doing some cool stuff and That filled me with joy. I think about the men that were up here yesterday. I can't help but smile on the inside and felt good. Almost all the men that are here were able to be there. That's cool. Moving on, verse 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Okay, so he's confident that they will be steadfast in their faith. That's, that would make you feel good. Verse 7, 
It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I told you in, I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. We have been hearing for many years, I don't know if you've heard people say it, but you can't really defend the gospel. The gospel doesn't need a defense. You can't defend it. It doesn't matter. You can't win an argument when you're defending the gospel. It's not going to happen. That's a bunch of baloney. Read your Bible. It happens throughout. In fact, Paul is saying here, notice this, he's, he's appreciative of them and he thinks the way he thinks of them. And he's, and he's talking about when they came, when they helped him in both his imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And a defense of the gospel, if you want to do that well, you want to understand the subject of apologetics, which is basically how to defend the gospel. You might, if you want to look for resources out there, that's the subject. And if you want to get even better, you need to understand polemics, which is the art or skill of the refutation of error. We live in a world now where people say there are, there's nothing that's right and there's nothing that's wrong. Yeah, well, people don't really believe that. They don't. And you can prove that to them by uh, asking them for uh, 20. You say, you got a $20 bill? Or you got a couple of 10s? Yeah, you got a couple of 10s. Okay, can you hand me a couple of 10s? And you hand, they hand you a couple of 10s. You say, okay. Um, and you give them back a 10. There's all your money back. You keep a 10. And they say, well, I gave you two 10s. No, see, uh, my truth is that uh, you gave me one 10. You go to the bank. And they say, hey, uh, you're $500 uh, overdrawn. Like, what? Where'd the money go? And you show them, oh, no, 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 no. I got the receipts. I've got everything right here. And they say, nah, see, our truth is money went away. You're not going to let that happen. There is a reality. Dollars matter. Math, math, it's all based on absolutes. That's how you do math. So if there's anybody in here that loves math, you know there's always absolutes. I had a professor that was, I sh he was very wise. I'm not going to name him, but he was teaching philosophy. And at times, I probably was suffering the consequences of staying up too late and not studying like I should have been, just playing, a college student, being young and foolish. But I got sleepy in his class, and I woke up to something I was shocked to hear him say. He just, I'm just barely listening, and I thought, did I just hear him say that? He said, okay, uh, there's a particular philosopher that, that asked the question, you know, if a, if a tree falls in the woods and no one's there to hear it, did it make a sound? And then he went on to, is the tree even there if no one's there to see it? And that's the philosopher was saying, he said, I'll tell you what, um, I can blindfold that philosopher who can't see the tree and slam his head right into that tree and say, hey, does that tree exist? <laughs> thought, did, did he just say that? He did. Reality is reality no matter what people try to say. There is truth, and I believe this book is a good example of absolute truth. And if you want to talk more about that, absolute truth, uh, I, we can talk more. Francis A. Schaeffer was a good apologist for absolute truth. Philippians 1.8, it continues. 
For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with my affection of Christ Jesus. Affection is just another word for love. Continuing, verses 9 through 11, wrapping up the text. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I don't know if you're getting a feel as Paul introduces his book. That's all we're doing. That's all we're doing is looking at the introduction section. And he's trying to encourage all of us in just this short section We've got to abound in love for one another and be thankful. It was in the east side of St. Louis in 1986 where I had begun doing some inner city mission work. We, everything seemed to fall apart that weekend because the student that was leading this, I didn't even know there wasn't a professor associated with this inner city mission thing. I signed up for it and thought, this will be a good experience. And then it, it was all crashing and burning. Everything was going wrong. The student leader was not much of a leader. He hadn't planned well. It was, he told us all, don't bring money because there's, Eastside St. Louis is rough. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. I think somebody in here is from Gary, Indiana. Is that right? You are? Yeah, that's rougher. <laughs> but there's some there's some bad stuff that goes down in Gary, Indiana, and Eastside St. Louis. There I was in Eastside St. Louis. He had, the, the student leader had said, nobody bring any cash because if anybody sees it, we're all going to become targets. So just don't bring cash. But I'm, I'm thinking, I'm not going to spend a week in Eastside St. Louis with no money. So I brought cash. I brought $200. And we ended up, every, it, was, it was bad. Everything was bad bad about the food that was being prepared for us and the living conditions we were going to have to be in. There was, it was odors and germs and all kinds of nasty. So my 200 bucks had to feed the whole group for a week. And I learned this as we get there, like, okay, we need this. And there was just no organization. And so I asked the question, it's Sunday, and there's been, we got there Sunday afternoon. It's like, are we not going to have church? No well, what are we here to do? And, and there was not going to be any church service, and we'd missed it because we were driving to get there. We're not having church. Well, we need to have church. Well, they're not having church here because they're getting ready for tomorrow. So some in the group decided, let's just start walking. Start, let's, find a, let's find a church. See, so a bunch of, I think there's about 14 of us, white people and a part of the world that is not white. <laughs> We're walking through like a gangland of black people who don't like white people usually in that particular time. Um, and there we were infiltrating their neighborhood. And we're walking around and people are trying to sell us stolen stuff as we're moving along. And, like, and we turn a corner and we come to a house that has, it's taped off. The police have taped it off. You're not supposed to enter. It's it's under investigation. Bad stuff's gone down. There's bullet holes, not just through the glass, but through the wall. You see the bullet holes. Oh, well, that's scary looking. I'm hanging back with my friend. We're kind of like, this is, this is scary. I got my Bible. 
because I was wanting to go to church. In my Bible, I had some notes I had taken because that week we're supposed to do uh, a revival and uh, vacation Bible school, and I thought my responsibility was going to be to teach kids. And so I had that prepared in there. I didn't want to lose it, so it was in my Bible. And as we go to make a turn, go up a hill, somebody who's sitting on that house that nobody's supposed to be there, he goes, what are you white people doing here? And I turned around and thought, I don't know what's going to happen. I said, we're trying to find a church. He goes, you ought to do church right here. It's where we need it. And my friend looked at me and I, okay. So we got everybody to come back and we were standing there with all this tape and the guy disappeared. Where'd he go? I don't know where he went. But the next thing you know, there's people converging on us, a bunch of people. And everybody's looking at me like I'm supposed to take charge. Okay, let's, uh, well, let's sing some songs. So we sang some songs. And uh, then we, we sang one song. Then I thought, they look at me like, okay, now what? So uh, I guess I have to preach. And so this was my introduction to preaching, essentially, on the cuff, off the cuff. So I opened up, I had my notes, I began to preach. And I, can, I don't know if you've ever been to a uh, culture uh, black church culture is different than white church culture. I'm just saying it's a lot easier to preach. They amen you. They applaud you. They uh, preach it. You know, uh, got to have some energy now. So I, I became a better preacher than I am today probably. But anyway, so I, I preached a little bit. And then I thought, this is designed for kids. Like, I'm, I think I'm struggling. But they, they loved it. I go, let's sing another song. So we were singing the song. Oh, you can't get to heaven. You know that song? Oh, you can't get to heaven. Well, as we're in, in different, different courses go with it. And you can make it up as you go. It's kind of fun. There was this very large lady who was very into the singing, and she really took over the singing of that song. And then I begin to hear sirens, a bunch. And the police surrounded the crowds. And this one police car is making extra siren noises as all the rest had stopped. And uh, the passenger door flies open and a very large uh, offense, uh, defensive lineman uh, got out of the car. He's a policeman, but he was, you know, 350 pounds at least. So he, he gets out and like, that man's too big for that car. But he gets out and he... And they open up, you know, this, so he makes his way to us. And we were still singing, oh, you can't get to heaven. And it kind of dies down because he walks up doing his hands like this. What's going on here? And the lady that was leading the song, she goes, we're having church. And she, he looks at me like, is that what's happening? Yeah. All right. So he kind of told his comrades it was okay. He goes, no trouble here tonight. Okay, no trouble, no trouble. All, everybody's agreeing, no trouble. All right, so he goes and gets, goes to get in the car, and before he sits in, he turns around and goes, oh, you can get to heaven. And the lady let us in, oh, you can get to heaven. He goes, in a policeman's car, and <laughs> waved and closed the door. And we had a fantastic revival, because after that, we were able to tell everybody, hey, by the way, we're doing a revival. If you want some more preaching and singing, that's where it's going to be. And a church that was dying was able to come alive for a few more years because of that. But in my mind, it's like it's all falling apart. It's so stupid, so bad. Everything's so disorganized. It's so bad, bad, bad. And God turned it into good. And he even used me, and I wasn't even ready to be used. Back to that last 
section, I want you to pay attention to two things. Go home with this. You can see in this introduction that God is demonstrating genuine appreciation with Paul's words. Paul wasn't planning to go to Philippi in the first place. And then when he did go there, he got beaten and thrown in jail. And he still thanks God for the experience and the fact that he loves these people. And they are these people that he evangelized when he went to a place he wasn't planning on going. He thanks God for those people every time he thinks of them. And don't miss that second part. Because of that, he's in perpetual prayer. Every time he thinks of them, he prays, which is what we should do. You see people here in the church, and every time they come to mind, oh, I'm going to pray for them. Stop for a moment and and pray. But notice something else he does. Because I said prayer plus, the reason why that plus is there, he didn't just pray. He actually tells them, I pray for you all the time. I love you. And I want you to abound in love. This is what we're supposed to do. And if you want to have an impact on your community and your family and your co-workers and your school, this, this is what we do. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for showing us how to have genuine appreciation, how to live it out. Just as we crack open the book of Philippians for the first time, you've got so much for us, Lord, and, and we do want to please you. We want to please you in how we pray for others, how we think of others, and how we encourage others. So help us in that. In Jesus' name, amen.